It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Wednesday the 15th of August uh, with much debate and discussion from now till 11am this is Michael Reed on LMFM. The leading search results have been available from schools to most young people since 9 o'clock this morning 57,000 students will contemplate their futures as they open envelopes in what will be the most important day for many of them in the last 18 years while a bell curve ensures the results are statistically in line with other years. Individually people will be delighted and sometimes disappointed by what they've achieved. There will be much talk today of how close on 4,000 have failed maths, why there should be more focus on STEM subjects, if the Leaving Cert is fit for purpose and how a review of the senior cycle is being carried out by the National Council for Curriculum and Assessment. But today is a day for the class of two 2018. Congratulations uh, to anybody who is receiving uh, their results uh, this morning. It may shape the rest of your life, but there are options. Uh, and what those options are, well, a lot of people, perhaps sometimes older than you, have already experienced. And Ross Lee, he has been out and about in Drogheda asking people about it at the Leaving Cert and what advice they might have for anybody who's getting their results this morning. Don't panic just don't stress it and there's always always another option don't stress I'd say no matter what happens there's always another option and if you're not happy with your result don't despair and if you are then congratulations but you know your life doesn't depend on the results enjoy it and don't whatever happens just um, you know there's always other options and you know if you don't get what you want there's always different ways to uh, get into the course or whatever you want to do there's always a different path if you don't get the marks you're looking for What advice would I have for Leaving Cert students I'd say don't stress too much uh, at the moment because um, you never know what's around the next corner you know uh, whatever plans you have now for your future you'll end up somewhere completely differently in a few years time so uh, enjoy the moment and uh, try not to stress too much Relax and no matter what comes out, uh, be happy. Uh, there's a whole life in front of you. And no matter what the results are, be happy. A lot of students feel that they get bad results and they're down and there's no need to because they have their whole life in front of them and a whole new thing could come out in front of them and to be just as be- well off, you know. Be happy with what you get. And there could be something better on in the future. And if you do, if you do get great results, well done and fair juice to you. 
It's from a former teacher. Uh, I just say, you know, uh, with all the students I put through the leaving set, I'd say uh, I'd recommend, right, enjoy yourself tonight, oh, everybody, but if you did well, great. If you didn't, I would just recommend, look, some of the best people and most brilliant people in this world didn't do well in their exams, so just go ahead, you'll, you'll find life, uh, there's an afterlife, believe, for everybody. To be honest, the leaving cert didn't make a big difference to me. Um, when I was finished school, I went and did a PLC. That was my plan all along. And now I am five years in and I'm in my last year now of college and I'm going to be a teacher. So I would say that don't worry about it and whatever happens, happens, that there's loads of other options and you'll always get to where you want to be. And not to worry about anything. Um, It doesn't define you as a person. Uh, Just go on and pursue whatever you're doing. Not to panic. I did mine uh, two years ago. I'm 28, went back and done it. And panic is everywhere with them. They're panicking and not to get drunk after they get the results because a lot of stuff can happen to them. Not to worry. You know, uh, colleges and everything. Um, they don't do as well as they thought they did. Maybe go back, do another year. But main thing, colleges and everything. Having done the leaving cert many years ago and led a very full life, I would say, don't stress too much. Uh, if you're in a little bit of shock about what you get, take some time to think about it, let it sink in. There's tons of options, you know. College isn't the end all be all. You can take a year out, you know. Don't let that initial shock, you know, worry you too much. Yeah, and if you get what you want, congratulations. I wouldn't count on the leaving results because I didn't do my leaving cert and I have a couple of businesses. So I don't think the skills teach them enough for the real world in the first place. You don't teach them what the real life is about. Not to rush into making any decisions for what they're going to do. Take time out, maybe travel, have a bit of time away before you jump into going to university. I went back as a mature student. When you're over 21, you can go back and do practically anything you want. So hang on, don't fret, give it a couple of years and then go on as a mature student and be whatever you want to be. No, take it, take it easy, not to worry too hard about it. Like The economy seems to be getting better, so there'll be jobs if you can't. If you, can, if you want to get a job immediately or if you want to take quite out or if you want to go for further education, not to worry too much about it will be the, the main thing. Things will work out and decisions you'll make now will change your mind in 20 years' time anyway about yeah. jobs and education. So I think uh, don't take it too serious. Uh, forget about the exams and uh, head down to the Flandre and enjoy yourself. Words of wisdom, some wiser than others, no doubt, uh, but a a consensus of opinion generally uh, to relax and look at your options if you are disappointed. Uh, Looking at uh, the front page of the Irish Times uh, this morning, you'd have to assume that some people will be disappointed. Uh, The headline is that almost 4,000 have failed maths. Some 3,700 students have failed leaving cert maths papers, which locks them out of many third level courses which is where their minds will be focused and if they're disappointed perhaps for that reason and perhaps they'll have to look at their options and some of the other routes that they might take as a result or to uh, resit the exam again next year as the case may be. Now the focus uh, for many on uh, the uh, third level courses will of course uh, be uh, not just uh, getting the course itself but finding 
somewhere to live. They say there's a shortfall of some 17,000 beds for the upcoming college term. Barry Clausey is the Vice President of the Union of Students in Ireland and on the line. And as usual, uh, perhaps even more so this year, Barry, I, I take it there'll be a, a scramble to get accommodation. Yeah, of course there will. And um, I, suppose, I suppose we're looking at the, the big areas being Cork, Dublin and Galway, who are we're currently in a serious crisis with the amount of beds that we're, we're under cup with, um, that we're looking for for students this year. Indeed, and uh, the cost of renting has uh, been increasing, as people, generally speaking, will know. Uh, USI has been calling for a, a cap on student accommodation. Yeah, so I suppose we, we, we've seen students being kind of used as cash cows um, by, say, purpose-built accommodation with, with increases of up to... I know in Galway, maybe 18% and, and even close close enough to Drada and Dundalk being DCU and Shannon with increase of up to 26%. So there, there are serious increases being made on students and students are being, are being used as cash cows um, in the accommodation crisis at the moment. All right, as is everybody, I suppose, or everybody feels that way if uh, they are looking to rent or to find the money to pay for rent. And uh, we're hearing of uh, student accommodation being rented out to tourists, such as uh, the demand. Uh, But there are ways that people can actually make money, uh, obviously, by renting out rooms that that they have in their own homes. uh, And indeed, they can do so tax-free. And you're calling on uh, people to consider making digs available to students. Yeah, so currently um, USI are running the Home for Study initiative and basically what we're doing is we're calling on homeowners who have a spare room in their house, be it for five or seven days, um, to basically rent it out to a student and they can do that. It takes just a couple of minutes. Homes.usi.ie, they can actually make up to €14,000 annually tax-free um, for renting out a room to a student. Right, uh, that's a, a, a lot of money. Uh, you wouldn't expect somebody to rent out a, a single room for that amount of money though, would you? No, we we hope not. It, it, that that would be kind of used if they would have a couple of rooms spare in their house that they could let out to students. It's very difficult, isn't it, uh, given how uh, close uh, the time frame is in between getting your results and uh, college starting, uh, because uh, it is so difficult to get accommodation. You have a very little uh, time frame uh, in order to seek somewhere. It is very difficult, and I, and I suppose we're, that's the reason we're calling on homeowners now at the minute, Kind of ease that burden on students and to give them a home that they can study in while they're while they're going through their education. As you know, go, going to college can be a very stressful time for some students, and we don't want the, the, the search for accommodation to be a burden on someone. And especially today, I suppose when we have students getting their leaving cert results, we don't want them to be very happy and then to be burdened with um, the, the search for accommodation. So we really want homeowners out there to get on this initiative, get onto homes.usi.ie and register their room and rent it out to a student. I take it uh, student organisations like USI are there for uh, young people coming into first year because life really is changing for them, isn't it? Uh, they go from being school children, not only to going to college, but fending for themselves uh, in uh, this sense uh, that they end up renting an apartment, paying their rent and feeding themselves and getting themselves to and from college on a daily basis. Yeah, like I, I suppose today is a really exciting time. Um, students' futures start shaping. The search for accommodation begins. They're looking at what courses they're they're going to be getting in their CA offer. So it's a really exciting time for students today. And I know when I started college myself, there's almost six years ago at this stage, uh, it was a very exciting time for me. So I think that the students today really need to search, continue the search for accommodation, 
Um, and I suppose we really, really, really are pushing that digs is a real affordable and viable option for students to use in the interim. Otherwise, uh, what uh, should people be planning to set aside? How much should they be looking at in terms of paying for rent? Because there's uh, many ways of doing this, uh, from getting a, a one-bedroom apartment to sharing in a house or getting digs. Yes, I, I suppose it all it all differs where you're going to be staying. Um, and I suppose if you want to te- if students want to get onto their local students' unions um, to check what the, what they should be paying for rent in their area, um, that is their best bet. So if someone is planning on going to GCU, it's their best bet. We get onto GCU students' unions, have a chat with them. They'll know best about their location and how much you should be paying for rent. All right. Well, listen, uh, thanks uh, for joining us with that uh, advice uh, this morning. Barry Clossy, Vice President of USI, the Union of Students in Ireland. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Wednesday morning and uh, the local newspapers should be available to you. Marie Kearns is here to take a look at what's on uh, the front pages. We'll begin in Drogheda. I think both of uh, the papers in uh, the town, the leader and uh, the Drogheda Independent are leading with uh, the Flakul. That's right, Michael. I think there's only one story in Drogheda this week and um, the Drogheda Independent probably sums up the feeling of the town right now with their lead story, Drogheda Goes Fla Crazy. The papers reporting that judging by the figures on the first day, numbers attending could hit a massive 500,000 this week. Initially, I think the estimates were 400,000, so that's what they're predicting at the moment. And it has a 12-page Fla special inside with lots of pictures and details of events that's definitely worth looking at. Also on the front page... The paper's reporting that despite the return of pay parking, residents of the Windmill Road area, remember we covered that story, Michael, uh, a couple of months back, but they're still feeling under siege, even though the pay parking has returned to the town, that they're difficult, difficulties with parking, and that's impacting on deliveries and collections. And, of course, it's impacting on the likes of carers calling to people's homes in the area. And the residents are requesting an informal meeting with the town councillors. OK, well, we uh, thought that uh, the suspension of charges in Drogheda was going to lead to a review of how parking was charged for. I'm not sure if there's been any difference, uh, little difference, if there has been any difference since the charges were reintroduced. So, undoubtedly, that continues to be an issue for the residents on the Windmill Road uh, to Meath and uh, the Meath Chronicle then. Yes, the front page story there is reporting that a 16-year-old youth involved in a knife attack in Navin on Thursday was then at the centre of a terrifying joyriding incident with a 53-seater bus early on Sunday morning. The private bus was extensively damaged when the youth who was on bail crashed the vehicle on the Trim Road. Uh, the Meath Chronicle also has an interest an interesting story, Michael, read the presidential election with the news that a second candidate in Meath, Jimmy Smith, he's an acclaimed guitarist, has also thrown his hat in the ring. And it seems that he's more interested in getting to the point where he can actually debate with the other candidates and find out why they want to run so than the actual position itself. So that's a bit of a novel development. Oh, interestingly, the paper's also reporting that two Fine Gael members are going to ignore their party guidelines to support President Higgins and support 
Gavin Duffy instead, and that's Maria Murphy and Alan Tobin. And of course, we've all we also know that Sharon Yogan, Tom Kelly, and Tommy Riley have indicated that they are likely to support him as well. All right, so the Dundalk Democrat is taking a look at uh, the impact of the good weather on agriculture. Yes, a local farmer, Donald McElroy, has spoken candidly about the huge mental and financial pressure farmers in Louth are under due to the extreme weather this year. The Kilcurley farmers says that they've had a tough old spring and the stress of having to pay for all this extra feed is something that people don't think of. He says that farming is a business and bills have to be paid and a lot of farmers are working on their own and don't have colleagues to to help him. It's costing an extra 3,500 a week to feed the cows. So I suppose that it's putting a human face on this story, Michael. All right, and uh, you've uh, two other papers uh, from Dundalk in front of you, the leader and the Argus, and they're both looking at uh, the politics of Fine Gael in the county. That's right, and of course that's the big talking point in the Dundalk and, and indeed the Louth area, it's Peter Fitzpatrick's decision not to run for Fine Gael in the next general election. Paul Byrne, the Dundalk leader, is reporting on the battle locally to replace him with two t- county councillors in Dundalk amongst the nominations. That's, of course, Councillor John McGahan and Maria Doyle. And in the article, Councillor Doyle admits that she was surprised to hear of the deputy's announcement and she was honoured to have been nominated and is ready to give it all to ensure that the seat is kept in Dundalk. In the Argus, Olivia Ryan includes a tribute from Tonish that Simon Coveney in her report and she's he's saying that Peter's honesty, hard work and loyalty to high standards has been impressive and hugely valued with Fine Gael and says that he will be missed in Dáil Éireann. And did he say he could be quoted on Peter Fitzpatrick's uh, posters when he stands as an independent candidate or <laughs> well, whatever of course, it is? they may not have to miss him for too long, Michael. Right. Who knows? Yeah, who knows indeed. <laughs> Thanks for that, Marie. And uh, you'll be back with us uh, shortly with some of uh, the comments uh, that uh, people hopefully have for us uh, this morning. And uh, if you'd like to speak to Marie and make comment, as always, you can ring her on 1850 715 958 or you can text us on 0861 and as I say, Marie, we'll be back uh, with your comments on those stories, something else you've been hearing, or if there's an issue that you'd like to raise with us. As always, we'd love to hear from you. Now, let's go back uh, to the Leaving Search results and uh, Thomas Byrne, Fianna Fáil's spokesperson on education. Advice you have, uh, apart from congratulating young people this morning. Well, you don't want to be boring giving too much advice, but I think the one thing that we all know is that, you know, while the results today are determinative for where you get to college in September or October in terms of the points race, they don't determine your entire life. And I think all of us know that. You know, m- most of us today uh, would never have dreamt that we'd be in the particular careers that we're in on the day of the, the leaving set results. So life takes a huge amount of different paths. And this is just one step along the way. And it's a very, very important step. And I think huge work has been done. And I think congratulations to everybody uh, who's done that work. And congratulations to the people who are will be photographed in newspapers who've been the real high achievers at their levels. They're going to do really, really well. But everybody, uh, there's opportunities for them there. And really, what's determinative in life, in my experience, is hard work. And I think no matter what your academic level is, mm. uh, hard work will always uh, beat that. And they say that seven students uh, have the highest points across uh, the country, getting eight H1s, 53, seven H1s, and 189 H1s. And I suppose uh, these are the exceptional students, but everybody has achieved something by completing their Leaving Cert and they should be proud of themselves. Absolutely. Look, it's a major step. You're talking about 18, 19-year-olds and, uh, you know, I visit schools regularly and, you know, while people talk about dumbing down of standards, 
what I see in schools around the place is that generally speaking kids are a little bit older I myself was just past 17 literally 17 doing the leaving cert kids nowadays are that little bit older 18 19 perhaps and they are more mature you know visiting a politics leaving cert class in Shockland during the school year really was reminding me of university so I mean I, I, I think there's a very high standard out there uh, they've done a huge amount of work no matter what actual results they get in the day there are so many options there's university there's colleges uh, apprenticeships uh, there's jobs out there. There's a bit of hope there at the moment as well, which I think is, is welcome for people uh, at this particular stage of their life. All right, and uh, obviously there will be disappointment. Uh, it must be hard to balance in your mind if you would have the points otherwise, but to learn that you've failed maths, uh, which is the case for some 3,700 students, uh, which will rule out uh, many courses that students were looking for. Yeah, but it won't rule out other things. It doesn't mm. rule out doing maths again. It doesn't rule out doing an apprenticeship. It doesn't rule out going on to college in a different way. It doesn't rule out going to uh, a post-leaving certificate course specifically designed to prepare you uh, for college, such as in the Diffie here in Drogheda and in Dunboyne, uh, with two excellent further education They prepare people for not just for jobs and careers, but also to prepare them uh, to go forward uh, onto third level. Uh, so that's there are so many options there. I think anybody who's failed maths, you know, it might seem devastating. I think the headlines today will probably add mm. to that disappointment that they've been focused on. But, you know, that, that shouldn't be a focus. The, your results, your life path, you know, and I've attended graduation ceremonies in Dunboyne College regularly. And you see the, the kids who are there, for very, not, not because they failed maths or anything in particular, mm. but because they wanted to go there. Uh, and then they move on to Maynooth, they move on to Blanchard's and IT and to other universities and colleges or into jobs. Uh, and I think I think it's probably unfair to focus on on those who fail maths today, uh, because they shouldn't be singled out. They have achieved and will continue to achieve, uh, and you know they've got to focus on making sure that they work as hard as they can uh, to achieve what they can in life. Uh, on the other hand, uh, there's more students who have sat higher level papers this year than ever before, and 98% of those who took higher level maths have passed. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad of that. They obviously have reduced the pass rate slightly uh, to give some points for people to get in the 30%. I think that's probably welcome to give some recognition to that because if you get 35% of honours leaving cert maths, that, that is an achievement, which I, I mean, I agree that that shouldn't have been counted as, as, as simply nothing. Um, so, so that has happened. But my experience is that people are really studying better at, in, in this more modern age. They're learning better, in my experience, uh, looking and visiting schools. And I think that's very, very welcome. I think overall, I think the Leaving Cert ensures that the, the results should stay. I hope the same generally from year to year, that there shouldn't be great inflation. And it doesn't seem to me to be evidence uh, of great inflation. So if more people are doing higher level, that's welcome. But it probably has some connection to the fact uh, that you get points for between 30 and 40 percent as well. All right. Uh, is uh, the exam fit for purpose? Uh, we've had uh, a couple of studies in recent weeks uh, from DCU, which has indicated uh, that rote learning uh, continues to dominate over critical thinking. Uh, and uh, there is uh, a suggestion that uh, students are, are not being encouraged to use uh, their creativity and and uh, to uh, develop in the way that they could if there wasn't such a, a reliance on rote learning? Well, I, I've mixed feelings about that. As I said, you know, referring back to the politics class that I met um, recently in Shockland, there's not that many schools studying politics. I mean, that, that wasn't rote learning, actually, because they, they don't even have a textbook. So they have, you know, they read documents or they read 
other sources. I think that's an excellent way of learning. So that, that in no way is rote learning. And I think that is probably the way to go for a lot of subjects. But let's be honest about it. There are some subjects where you're going to have to do a bit of learning, a bit of rote learning languages. Mm. You're going to have to learn all formulae in science. You're going to have to, you know, there, there is a certain amount of rote learning will always be required. I think in terms of leaving cert reform, what I, what I would like to, what I don't want to see happening is uh, that there, all the reform work builds up behind the scenes in the National Council for Curriculum and Assessment as it's starting to happen at the moment. And then all of a sudden, uh, when things are announced or government moves forward with a plan, uh, that the unions then decide that they haven't been consulted enough or there's some industrial relations issue. And I would like to see uh, the unions fully on board with this reform process, fully on, on, first of all, on their part, interacting with the NCCA and the government in relation to this, but also making sure that the members on the ground are being kept informed of what's going on as well, so that whenever reforms do arrive and there's a consensus agreed that this is the best way to go, and that shouldn't be determined by politics, but rather what's mm. best for students, that we don't then fall into a trap of strikes and uh, you know action and disappointment for teachers or, or, or a negative reaction to it. And I think that the, the best way to avoid that is to have constant lines of communica- communication open. We tried to start that with the Oireachtas Committee, that we'd have some public discussion. We had a brief public discussion on Leaving Cert Reform. We need to continue that to make, make sure that the public is aware of what's going on, schools and teachers on the ground are aware of what's going on, as well as their their leaders in, in the various trade unions. Do you buy into the theory, though, that uh, Leaving Cert, as it's currently formulated, uh, whereby most subjects are a uh, test of memory, uh, is of advantage to wealthier students who can afford grinds? Yeah, there's, there's no doubt about that. I mean, the, the whole issue of grinds is definitely distorting the Leaving Cert, and that's, that's why we need to make sure that investment in our schools is at its best ever, that we have you know, enough teachers in schools, that we have enough teachers to teach the subjects. I mean, what's happening at the moment, in some cases, this isn't the cause of the grind thing, but what's happening is that in some subjects there's a huge shortage of teachers and you don't have a teacher for particular periods of time uh, during the school year. There's examples of that around uh, the constituency and around the country. Uh, and that, that's unfair. So if we resource schools to the best possible level within the financial resources that we have, then I think you reduce the pressure on parents to get grinds and make sure that all schools uh, are achieving uh, as best they can. But the difficulty with any process is that people will always try and give their children an advantage, and I, I can't criticise that. I mean, that's, that's just human nature. Uh, but if we can give children the best possible opportunities, uh, then that advantage is somewhat lessened, and that includes making sure that disadvantaged schools are given uh, the resources that they need uh, for children to thrive as well, so that they, they can go in there confident that they are actually you know, playing they're sorry, being examined uh, on a level playing field as everybody else. All right. Uh, just uh, while you're with us, uh, do you uh, care to make comment on Eamon O'Quive uh, and what uh, appears uh, to be his willingness uh, to be put forward as a candidate uh, for uh, the presidency? It doesn't seem as though uh, Fianna Fáil is going to budge. Uh, would you ask Michal Martin uh, to revisit this? No, I won't ask Michal Martin to revisit it. And in fact, the decision wasn't taken by Michal Martin. It was taken by the Fianna Fáil parliamentary party altogether, including Eamon and, and other members as well. So uh, the parliamentary party made a decision uh, to back Michael D. Higgins. There are other excellent candidates in the field as well, including uh, Gavin Duffy from the local area. Um, but that is the decision that Fianna Fáil has taken, and there will be no revisiting of that. The party has decided not to run a candidate in this election. I haven't discussed this with Eamon. I'm quite close to Eamon, but I haven't discussed it with him. Uh, I don't see this being a runner at all. Okay, so uh, do you envisage a situation uh, where he'll be forced out of the party? 
No, I mean, I, I haven't had any. I mean, I was away uh, for a couple of mm, weeks. And I, I know, but I mean, the, 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 the indications are that, that he'll have to stand as an independent. He could very well stand as an independent and lose his party membership. Well, the Constitution provides for a very difficult path for candidates to get nominated, and we see that already. Uh, they have to go to county councils and get four county councils to nominate them or get 20 members of the Oireachtas. It's almost impossible to imagine that anybody, maybe one candidate, might get 20 members of the Oireachtas, but it's unlikely. Uh, to get four county councils is a difficult uh, ah, easy enough for a Fianna Fáil fellow, isn't it? Especially when it's uh, Eamon de Valera's grandson. Uh, people aren't going to betray him like uh, his Aroxas uh, colleagues might. I don't, I, I don't understand the word betrayal. The party made a decision that Eamon was part of and then all of a sudden we hear some murmurings from... Ah, yeah, but it's going to be seen like that within the party, isn't it? No. Do you not no, think I so? Think any, God, I, I think, think it will. individual member has the right to... Just to overrun what has already been decided by the parliamentary party. That, that you'd force Eamon O'Keeve out of Fianna Fáil? But I uh, haven't said that. Because, I mean, I don't know if Eamon O'Keeve is running. But well, if, that, if that happened, wouldn't it be a betrayal or seen as a betrayal by some? Of Eamon? No, not at all. Absolutely not. I mean, Fianna Fáil is a united party going forward. We have decided as a parliamentary party, in terms of our nominations as a parliamentary party, um, that we would we would back. Much you you don't Fall. think if Eamon O'Keefe was forced out of Fianna Fáil, you don't think that don't some even, if he was. I don't, sorry, sorry, I don't even see that arising. I don't even see that arising that he'd be forced out of Fianna Fáil. I I, I have no indications whatsoever. It, this is a serious. If he gets the happen. nomination of four county councils, he'll have to stand as an independent, uh, and he'll have to uh, forgo his membership. Will he not? Well. First of all, just take a step back, I don't even know if he's going to seek the nomination of four county councils. If he's going to, it's the 15th of August, the election is in about two months' time, he's going to have to do that fairly quickly. And there's no indication that he's actively doing that. I would encourage him not to. I think Fianna Fáil needs to focus on being a party of government and taking the, mm. you know, taking the government office after the next election. That's our focus, and Eamon would be very... Well, there seems to, there, there's plenty of indication from Galway that that's what he's doing, uh, and the fact that he, he's not speaking to reporters or making any public statements would indicate that's what he's doing, and if it is what he's doing and he gets the nomination, uh, well, then he will have to give up his membership, uh, and then that will be seen as a betrayal, will it not, by some well, within Fianna Fáil? I haven't even... I, I wouldn't even get near that stage, because you're jumping... At a number of steps ahead. I mean, he has to decide that he's running, and I would encourage him not to. Uh, he has to get nominations from county councils. County councillors have a constitutional right to nominate who they want, so there's nothing we can do about who gets mm. nominated. A lot um, of people in Fianna Fáil are very upset about this, that you're backing the Labour man and denying the Fianna Fáil man. Well, we haven't denied anybody, because had Eamon O'Queeve said to us at, a, at our parliamentary party meeting, or indeed our front bench meeting, that actually he was interested in running, then maybe things would have taken a different turn. Uh, but the party took a decision uh, in the parliamentary party. The front bench had a discussion, then we took a decision in the wider group, aiming as a member of both groups, um, to back Michael D. Higgins, not as a Labour candidate, but as an independent candidate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, that's what Fianna Fáil is doing. And uh, that's, that's the decision that we've taken. So it doesn't even arise for me that, he would, that any of the steps that you've indicated uh, would actually happen. Okay. Thank you for joining us this morning, right. as always. Fianna Fáil TD for me, the Thomas Byrne is his party's spokesperson on education. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Now, research uh, published in uh, the British medical journal specialist journal Thorax has found that the vapour from e-cigarettes destroys protective cells, which keeps the lungs clear of harmful particles. And uh, the ASH group in this country is asking people 
people only to vape if it's a last resort that uh, it is quite possibly a danger to your health. We're joined by John Mallon who's a spokesperson for Forest Ireland a smokers rights group. Good morning to you John and thanks for joining us. I know you've told us before that you vape. Are you concerned this morning? Uh, not at all, no. I, I, I'm not concerned um, for many reasons, Michael. <clears throat> this is a very small study. Uh, it's a study of eight people uh, over a 48-hour period, and none of these eight people were actually vaping. I don't know if you read that between the lines. Uh, so the actual study itself doesn't particularly concern me, although I'm glad studies are being done. Um, what concerns me is, is maybe the, the way the press um, run these headlines. I mean, basically, the, the, this man, Professor David Tickett, uh, he said we shouldn't assume that, that uh, vaping is safe. Well, we're told also not to assume anything is safe. There's nothing is 100% risk-free. Uh, so, no, I'm sure that, that there's um, uh, difficulties down the road with vaping, as there is with food, as there is with breathing the air, as there is with the, our environment. <coughs> and what they're talking about in this is... Um, um, inflammation uh, of the respiratory system but then you know inflammation of the respiratory system can be down to environmental factors respiratory problems themselves genetic factors age and so on and and actually smoking which is the whole purpose uh, of these e-cigarettes they're to quit smoking right uh, and what do you mean they weren't vaping well what they did was they they took um e-cigarette liquid uh, your your listeners may not know but an e-cigarette doesn't have tobacco and you don't light it. Yeah. Uh, there's a liquid that's heated. Now, they took the liquid. Uh, in the past, when they've studied e-cigarettes, they've examined the liquid uh, under the microscope. In this one, they took the liquid and <clears throat> they generated what's called an extract uh, condensate. Mm. And this is by heating it. Now, we don't know to what temperature. They looked at the vapour, uh, the effect of the vapour rather than the fluid. Exactly. Is that not vaping? No, it isn't. They took swabs from the lungs uh, and they applied this um, condensate to us. Now, we don't know if that in any way mimics um, uh, e-cigs. And it was done only with eight people uh, and Mm. and it was only looked at over a 48-hour period. Right, but it increased the cell death by a factor of 50 and significantly increased uh, the production of inflammatory chemicals. Well, well, again, you see, you don't know that for sure. What, what you do know, um, it, for example, is that eight people were there. You, you don't know what sort of condition they were in, uh, and you don't know how that was factored for. It's very difficult in a small sample of eight. Typically, um, for, for, for this type of research, you'd be looking at 1,000 to 1,500 people, ideally, mm. to try and give you some sort of reliable result. Well, so like I say, it's not, it's not something that need worry um, users of e-cigarettes. Would you dismiss it? Would you dismiss, no, the, no, would you, no. would you dismiss the idea that you could end up with COPD after vaping for 20 or 30 years? I, look, you could end up with COPD yeah. without ever going near cigarettes mm. or vaping. Um, so, it, it's very, you know, on these things, it's very difficult. And this Would you dismiss the idea that uh, smoking or vaping e-cigarettes uh, can lead to people taking up smoking and smoking tobacco? Oh, I, I would. And indeed, uh, even the anti, uh, anti-tobacco people in this country have dismissed that. Um, it's not a route to, it's a route away a, a, from tobacco. A, a, 800 studies have found children who vape are, are more likely to try tobacco. That's absolute nonsense. I, I, fo- I follow this, Michael. There aren't 800 studies in, in the whole of uh, the, the, the field of e-cigarettes, um, but there, there, are, there are no studies that have ever concluded 
um, that e-cigarettes are route to smoking. You that they're more likely to smoke uh, as a result of vaping. Uh, there's also research uh, that shows uh, that uh, they emit toxic substances. No. Again, toxic. What do you mean by toxic? Well, I don't know. Ask uh, the American National Academics of Science, Engineering and Medicine yeah. organisation well, okay, well, what they mean by toxic. Let me explain to you. The, the dose is the poison. Uh, toxic means poisonous. Uh, for example, alcohol uh, is a toxin. Uh, take, it in, take it in quantity, it poisons you. It gives you a hangover um, and makes you drunk. That, that's, that's the toxicity of it. Um, so if something is toxic it, toxic, it has the potential to kill depending on the dose. Depending on the dose. Now, <clears throat> when you're talking about e-cigs, what they were talking about in that was the e-flavours that there was uh, in the flavouring um, there, there was um, uh, a substance or some sort of chemical mm. that if taken in great quantities could be toxic. <clears throat> but of course the quantities you take in are tiny. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so not, not toxic. Yeah, sorry, I've, I've an agitated dog here. I'm trying to quieten down. Okay, sorry, I thought it was a smoker's cough. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, but in, in the context of it, these studies are themselves misleading because, as they say at the end of this, much more research needs to be done. What can be misleading is the way the media um, portray it and report it. That, that's, I suppose, what disappoints me because the headlines tend to be, mm. you know, that they're attention-seeking and, and they're tending to... To, to, um, to, to create a sensation of some kind, uh, whereas these, these kind of things are honest studies. Now, this is very, a very limited one, um, but Nottingham probably will do an awful lot more of them. But there's a lot of unknowns and people are concerned and there has been research which has raised serious questions such as this piece of research in the British Medical Journal. In the context of that, um, there's none of us are experts on it, but the experts themselves, Public Health England, they did a, a, a very extensive review of, of e-cigarettes, and they said that there's overwhelming evidence, number one, that they're far safer than smoking, and number two, that they present no risk to bystanders. So there's no such thing as uh, second-hand vapour, for example. There's no reason to ban them. Now, in the context of mm. it, um, you know, rather than, than, than portraying it as a route to smoking, E-cigarettes are a route away from smoking tobacco. That's yeah. what they're there for. Okay. The, well. the, un- the unfortunate thing is, when you, when you throw up headlines like this to try and frighten smokers, what you end up doing is, is getting them to drop their e-cigarette and go back to tobacco again. Uh, and this is people who are trying to quit. And, and you know, for years we've had as smokers, um, people saying to us, oh, you should quit, give up those damn things. When you make an honest effort, they're condemning the way you're doing it. And you say to hell with this, you know, and, and that's, I think, what can be potentially quite damaging about this sort of thing. All right, well, that not, seems not fairly fatalistic. Itself. We leave it there for the moment, though, and thank you for joining us this morning. John Mallon, oh. spokesperson for Forest Ireland, a smokers' rights group. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of uh, the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and to everybody listening in. Mary wants to add her congratulations to all of those getting their leaving cert results today. She says that anybody who didn't get the marks they wanted shouldn't worry. There are many, many different ways to get yourself into college or to get your dream career. 
she says. Very good. Ted understands on student accommodation that it can be difficult for students to find reasonably priced accommodation, but he says he does feel a bit sorry for landlords who have to deal with students. He says generally they tend to have more parties. Okay, well I don't think anybody has to deal with anybody if uh, they're looking to rent out property in the current climate. Uh, I think uh, there's so much demand that landlords can pick and choose who they rent to. On the Leaving Cert, Fiona said that for her, the Leaving Cert Irish exam, that she learned of an essay word for word without really understanding a word of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then she just regurgitated it on the day of the exam. She said she has since forgotten it completely. She spent a lot of time preparing for her Leaving Cert, learning things off. And surely there's a much better way of actually learning for, for, for an exam like this instead of just memorising. Well, I think that's possibly part of uh, the review or reason for the review at uh, the NACC yes. are under uh, taking at the moment. Mick from Fingal phoned in uh, during your interview at the top of the show and he says that he was very disappointed with the, all the headlines this morning with words like failure and he says that this was before many of the students had actually gone in to pick up the results and the concentration on the maths failure. He says, are they not anxious enough without hearing all of this on the news first thing when they wake up. He says, it's not appropriate. Can they not wait to give out these details after the students collect the results and not have all these headlines before they go in because they're so nervous? And he says, it's terrible hard on Mm. parents and even grandparents, says Mick, listening to this because you're so worried as it is about the students. Yeah, it's an anxious wait. Uh, There's no doubt about it and maybe there's uh, some merit in what Mick is saying there, yeah. Charlie from Navin says, Congratulations to everyone on getting their leaving results today. I wish everyone well. He says that he's a bit disappointed at the lack of apprenticeships available. He says that there's not enough government funding for this and that young people are not being enticed to do apprenticeships anymore. And he says it's a very proud trading and he just wishes there was more openings for young people to get a trade. Well, that's uh, uh, something that's uh, being echoed, uh, I think, far and wide. Uh, there's a, a lot of people calling uh, for more access to apprenticeships. I think there actually there probably is more apprenticeships uh, available this year, uh, but uh, possibly need for more. And it is uh, quite obviously uh, a route uh, that many people have taken in the past and are now running their own business and working uh, quite successfully as a result. Uh, as you've been hearing all morning, if you are leaving cert students, there's many options and many core. Courses, uh, routes, that is, that you can take uh, on the road of life. And it's not all about third level. It may be for some people, but of course, uh, other people will have other options that they could be looking at. Well, interesting you say that, Michael, because Susan rang in yesterday just on foot of your interview with Dr. Coleman Nocter of the St. Patrick's Mental Health Services and he mentioned that most students uh, kind of feel that they that they should be going to third level college. Most of them expect to go and she just says that why is that, she wonders, that there's this expectation that, you know, should you not be grounding students and saying that if you're not particularly academic mm. that there are other routes to take. She just wonders who puts that pressure mm. on the children. Is a society as a, ho- as a whole? She says because many parents don't, they just want their children to be happy. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really good question because I, I think uh, that uh, if there is such a, an onus on young people to go to college, uh, well, then perhaps they're making the wrong choice. It may not be for them. It may not suit them uh, because we're all different and we all have different skills and uh, abilities and uh, we may be denying ourselves uh, the opportunity to do something that we're really suited to by doing the wrong thing. 
another listener, and I thought it was a, an interesting one, didn't want to give her name, rang in, and it was just in relation to something that Deputy Thomas Byrne mentioned, Michael, in relation to Grimes. And this listener says that her daughter put herself under huge pressure this year for the exams to the extent that she was getting grinds in three different subjects because she wants points for a certain course. And she worries that her daughter, when she, if she does get this course, that she may not be able for it because mm. she's after getting all this help for the course. But she says, as parents, we're in a lucky position. We have the money to be able to do it. But I still worry that it may, you know, that it may mm. be too much for her at the end of it all. Yeah. So there's lots, I suppose, of uh, worries there. Uh, another listener says, Eileen phoned in and says, feel sorry for students and the stress they feel under. But as the people said in your Vox Pop, that it's not the be all and end all of everything. It's just a stepping stone. It doesn't determine the rest of your life. That is in your own hands, yeah. says Eileen. Mm. And they said that uh, to a man or a woman, as the case may be. Uh, Debbie phoned in and she says, it makes her laugh listening to our programme about students being under pressure when it's the media that puts all this hype around the leave insert. She says, that's what the pressure is on. She says, the newspapers have pages and pages and pages about who did great, uh, what the, mm. you know, the who got the best results. What about all the students who just achieved their own best result Mm. that may not Mm. be getting the top grades. Too much emphasis on the best. Mm. Yeah, Well, I mean, you're always going to get that in any competition and uh, the Leaving Cert is uh, in essence uh, a competition. Obviously, it's more important than that and I think it's the importance of the results uh, that puts pressure on uh, the students and their families uh, because it can shape the future of the lives of the young people who are getting their results today. It's not the be-all and end-all as Everybody has been saying, and there are other options you could decide to repeat, for example, or uh, to take a, a, a look at an apprenticeship or something else like that. Uh, but it is a very important day for uh, an awful lot of young people at the same time. There's just two more, more comments, mm. uh, leaving cert related, if you like. Uh, Michael, uh, people say that the leaving cert is a fair system, but how can it be fair when children with money can get grinds and those who come from homes with a limited or low income can't? Mm. You hear now of children getting grinds in multiple subjects, not because they might fail that subject, but because they want to get the highest grade possible. Equal, Mm -hmm. not. Well, that's the criticism that's come from uh, that DCU report, uh, which is saying uh, that uh, this rote system of learning and uh, the fact that wealthier children can afford grinds discriminates against those families that don't have as much money. Another listener, John, says failing maths is not the end of the world. Not every course needs you to have maths, Hmm. says John. That is true. We'll move on then. We had a call from Grania and Drata and Grania says that why doesn't Peter Fitzpatrick put everybody out of, of their misery and just say whether or not he's going to run? What is he waiting for, Grania wonders? Well, I'm... I'm <laughs> well, I, I, I don't, I don't know. Uh, I, I think uh, he's laid out his stall very clearly. Uh, that uh, at the time when he had to make it clear or not as to whether he was going to put himself forward as a Fine Gael candidate, he's said that he's not. Uh, and what he does from here uh, is something for him to decide. Uh, yes. And uh, as he said in a statement, he'll talk to his family and consult with people, and uh, undoubtedly he's talking to other people and making his mind up as he goes. 
John also got in touch just responding to the newspaper review and the talk about Peter Fitzpatrick and he thinks that it's going to be quite an unpredictable election in Louth this time around because not only uh, might Peter Fitzpatrick not be contesting, well he definitely won't be contesting for Fine Gael, but you also have uh, Gerry Adams uh, not contesting as well. So he thinks it will leave it open and that maybe somebody will come that we don't even know of at all at this stage. So maybe so. Well, Anything can yeah. happen. Well, I'm sure there'll be plenty of uh, candidates. Uh, there's usually plenty of candidates. Uh, some of them you'll know and some of them uh, you won't know as well or may not know at all. On vaping, uh, we had uh, Seamus from Dundalk and he says, is there anything really good for you nowadays, Michael? Because listening to the media, almost every other day, there's some study or some survey out mm. telling you you shouldn't eat this or you shouldn't drink this. And he says, sure, if we listen to all of them, we wouldn't touch anything. We wouldn't do anything. Do you not think it's all a little bit over the top? Say, uh, Seamus. I don't know. Um, <laughs> you'd have to ask uh, the medical researchers who've uh, published uh, the study uh, that question. Uh, it's uh, something uh, that these experts have put forward for you to consider. And uh, if you wish to dismiss it, that's up to you. Uh, we're just telling you what they've said. Jenny says that her mother gave up cigarettes after something like 40 years and vapes now all the mm, time mm. and now to hear that this might not be safe is a worry she mm, says mm. because people made that transition you know thinking they were doing it for their health mm. and now she says it is a worry so yeah well I don't think uh, and uh, you know that uh, anybody is saying definitively that it mm. is unsafe uh, there is a question mark over the safety of vaping there's no question mark uh, about uh, smoking uh, and uh, that uh, tobacco can lead to cancer Okay, we'll finish on that, Michael. All right, thanks uh, for that, Marie, and thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us today. If you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 1850-715-958. That's 1850-715-958. You can ring Marie on that number now, or you can text us directly on 86 658 Michael Reed on LMFM. The Catholic Church is disgraced this morning uh, for child sexual abuse and indeed uh, the cover-up of clerical child sexual abuse. More than 300 predator priests in Pennsylvania, USA, have uh, been found to have abused a thousand children over seven decades. This is according to a grand jury that has decried what it describes as a systematic cover-up by the Catholic Church and its hierarchy. Here we're awaiting the arrival of Pope Francis and the papal visit is marred in controversy once again. The ending clergy Abuse Global Justice Project have written to Archbishop Dermot Martin asking him to remove three cardinals from the speakers uh, to address the world meeting of families in Dublin this month. And they are Cardinal Oscar Maradiga from Honduras who... Uh, is uh, being accused uh, of uh, having knowledge of the sexual sexual misconduct of an auxiliary bishop, Juan Jose Pineda, 
another two cardinals, Kevin Farrell and Donald Whirl, are being linked to Cardinal Theodore McCarrick, who resigned following allegations of sexual abuse. And the questions are what they knew about the abuse that he was meeting out. Uh, they've written to Archbishop Merton, as I say, and in that letter they say, we urge you, Archbishop, to ask the Pope to order that three cardinals facing serious questions and public outcry about protecting brother bishops who have committed sexual abuse be removed from their prominent speaking roles at the World Meeting of Families. They should be investigated instead. Brendan Butler, spokesperson with We Are Church Ireland, is on the line, and it's another dark day for the church, Brendan. Yes, it is, and it's the most depressing. And also, yesterday, uh, the uh, Special Commission in England published a report into the two uh, Benedictine uh, private schools and found widespread evidence of uh, of sexual abuse of children by uh, by the Benedictine monks. And also in Australia yesterday, a bishop, mm. which is priest unprecedented, has been convicted and sent, he's not been sent to jail. He's under house arrest. Yeah. House mm-hmm. arrest. Mm-hmm. He should mm-hmm. be sent to mm-hmm. jail, but howsoever. But it's a most depressing day. And I, I, I at this stage, I would feel uh, that this world meeting of family should be called off. And, uh, or that the Pope would say every cardinal, everyone up there on that altar in, in the Phoenix Park should wear sackcloth and ashes. It is no cause for celebration. I, I, I just can't uh, fathom the idea that we could go ahead. It, it, it's like uh, something like the stardust happens and, and we have a big festival in Dublin. You, you can't have that. Mm. It should be, some, something has to be done. And not alone that, but uh, 35 million of, of euros being spent on a spectacle, a razzmatazz spectacle, for nothing else. And Pope, I'm, I'm sure Pope Francis would prefer a little hot uh, in the Phoenix Park. But when you see the monstrosity and the amount of money being spent on an altar uh, on that, that will be demolished the day afterwards. And no other organization or a family could afford. They just keep on spending and spending. And it's either money from the taxpayer or money from uh, Catholics. And don't forget, most Catholics going to Mass are old-age pensioners. Mm. And it's out of their pension that that money is coming. Mm. It's not coming from young people, you know, who don't go to Mm. Mass. So, uh, and uh, a lot of them will be in the park uh, and they're told to prepare for it uh, in the way that you might uh, prepare for climbing Crow Patrick, but that's a, another day's work. Uh, yes. Colin McGorman was telling us he, he's expecting thousands of people to meet with him at three o'clock on Sunday week uh, to coincide with uh, the papal mass in, in the park uh, and to hold vigil. Uh, for the injustice uh, that has uh, been done against people by members of the church. This letter from uh, the Ending Clergy Abuse Global Justice Project uh, was published in part in the Irish Times and they've also asked that the Pope acknowledge and meet publicly with survivor leaders uh, of abuse in this country and that he would announce that the next World Meeting of Families would be dedicated to the impact and prevention of sexual violence, particularly clergy sexual violence on families. Yes, and it's the black spot really of Pope Francis's uh, pontificate so far. He has failed really to deal with uh, sexual abuse of clergy and especially of cover up by bishops. And that's why Mary Collins here, our, our Irish representative, she resigned 
because she put forward that recommendation that bishops who cover up should be uh, censored and should be removed. But then uh, that was that was just knocked on the head, and even the Pope himself didn't go ahead with it. So the, he has ultimate responsibility here, and something must be done because this it, it you know these three cardinals they're going to be addressing uh, people here in Crow Park and, and you know in different places. And there are three leading Catholic uh, bishops, one of them, Irish Bishop Cardinal Farrell, who is in charge of the entire lot. He was the vicar general. That means personal secretary to this famous, uh, this abusive Cardinal McCarrick in, in, in the States. And that has been known and known seemingly for years. And this Cardinal was strutted around the United States. He met presidents. He went to the Vatican. He, he elected popes. And now he's been forced to resign once and for all. But he didn't resign voluntarily. Mm. He had to be forced out. And uh, uh, he's no longer a member of the College of Cardinals. And he should be defrocked. But, uh, you see, these things don't happen in the Catholic Church because I think they're afraid of a domino effect. Because those four bishops, as you mentioned there Mm. in Pennsylvania, they're all mentioned and very much involved in the cover-up of 1,000, at least 1,000, they're saying up to Mm. 3,000 or 4,000 children. Mm. You know, that's a terrible crime. It's a crime against humanity, not alone against a crime against God. So uh, how how in heavens, uh, you know, that we can put up with this church, uh, with these bishops who have been covering up? I think the cover-up is is worse than the, the other because uh, you cover up, you allow this person to move on and then you move him on again and he, he this pri- and they're all mm. priests obviously and male and the, uh, and this cardinal in America he, 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 will, he abused seminarians and young people all through his life and so we have to do that is the most important and that's, that's why I find moving ahead, I, I, if I had my way I would cancel this world meeting of families. Really? There's no cause of celebration. How can you stand up there and celebrate the family life when family life has been destroyed so in so many parts of the Catholic Church, you know, and you know, and these were children, parents who mm. who were very active Catholics because they were the people who were uh, uh, open to these priests. You know, they were invited home and they abused their children. Mm. So there's a great lack of trust and I it, don't. It, it won't be. It won't be cancelled. Uh, I mean, I, I there, won't. I know. There, there, there's no. There's it, no I, doubt I, I, about that. But would you? Would would you join with this group? Are, are we, our Church Ireland, calling on the Pope to withdraw the participation of the three cardinals, Maradiga, Farrell, and Whirl? Yes, we will. Yes, and uh, at least that. So uh, it, it, it's just that. It, it, it's just so overpowering and, and depressing. And uh, I, I, as, as a Catholic, you, you can't... Ha- I, I, I certainly won't be attending any of these ceremonies at this stage. Certainly not. And uh, so, it, it, because it's, it, it's a rally... What is it for? It's for... And it's only for Catholics who, who really... It's an, also adoring an icon of the Pope, really. That, that's really what it is. And what is it going to achieve? 
everyone I don't, I, I don't know will really, really, really increase tourism or anything like that they say oh, uh, that it's, <laughs> it, they say it, it's going to be costly that every hour the Pope spends here will cost a, a million euro uh, and he'll be here for 32 hours I think which will be 32 million euro and uh, the church is planning to contribute 20 million to the cost and then you see CIE uh, or uh, uh, all the bus companies and the rail companies are given free travel on the day so the cost will be enormous and they're saying, oh, well, you have all these visitors coming, but I can't. That's not even the point. It's not, if it's a tourism event, let it be a tourism event, but not a Catholic church event celebrating family life when family life has been destroyed right across the globe by, you know, agents of the Catholic church and nothing has been done. Mm. That is the problem now is Francis unless he comes out very strong here in Dublin and does something, not just says it, does something in an action, he, he is obliged to do that because he cannot come here to Dublin and say nothing about uh, sexual abuse and not even saying sorry because people who have been abused are fed up with the word sorry. They mm. want to see something done, action. That is justice done. Justice demands that people are held accountable. And these especially the bishops and, and cardinals. And, you know, they are in the Vatican, they know it's, uh, if there's an abuse uh, uh, accusation made, every bishop is obliged to send it immediately to Rome. So in Rome, the Pope wouldn't have a dozen. Now, obviously, he doesn't go down every day, but he has a cardinal in charge of that area. Mm. And all of those abuse, there must be millions in it. Yeah, but this will blow over, Brendan, and uh, next year or another (laughs) time at least uh, we'll be talking about something similar. There'll be no church left. Um, Well, I don't know. Uh, They they, they said that 20, 30 years ago. uh, But but, but look, look, you you go down to any church, no young person will be there. You know, and it's just you go down to any mass and you'll see them in Crow Park and in the Phoenix Park, all the grey heads. There won't be. I don't think there'll be many grey heads there, given what they've been saying. But anyway, children will be brought anyway. But, yeah. but it, it, it's a bad. It, it won't. The church won't survive, and I, I have no doubt whatsoever unless radical changes are made, and yeah. especially accountability. That is, crimes against children must be the most horrific crime that can be imagined. But when they tell you you'd need uh, to be fit enough uh, to climb Crow Patrick uh, to attend, there's a lot of people who are saying, sure, I'd never even try it. I know people climb it every year, but you hear of somebody dying trying to climb Crow Patrick every year as well. Uh, so not really something for most people, uh, particularly the grey-headed people listening to us, to contemplate. Yes. Uh, well, at least Crow Park is free to climb it. But, uh, and, and, uh, so if we had something toned down, it just there's no limit on the budget here because the people who are running in this want to make a huge spectacle because they realize the church is on the way down and they're trying to make a big fanfare of here's the Catholic Church. But at the background, people are not fooled anymore. And people will be just turned off to see a razzmatazz while nothing is being done for, you know, accountability of children and bishops, cardinals, being glorified up there. They should be all wearing sackcloth and ashes, every one of them, and wearing black. But instead of that, you'll see it all with their 
cardinal reds, socks, shoes, the whole razzmatazz. And it, it, I, I think it is, I, I, at this stage, I feel so disgusted, really. And because when I think I, I have children, we all have children, to think that those children who have been over thousands of them abused over the last 10 years, and yet you have these bishops and cardinals floating around, they'll be over here in Dublin talking and re-traumatising people. Because if you're a gay person who was abused, especially, and you're listening to these uh, cardinals and bishops haranguing you about the love of God, you're re-traumatised. And so therefore... I, how can he, even Dermot Martin in charge, he, he's the president of the whole thing he, how can he just sit there he must squirm but mm. apart from squirming you have to do something about it or else this church will just fade away and there's no doubt whatsoever okay. you say it'll be, you know, the last 1979 we had millions and none of us, we were all sort of very you know, pure and simple. We weren't. We didn't realize it. Now we do realize it, and that'll be the end of it unless something is done. Okay, and you're asking him to do something uh, by way of removing uh, the three cardinals uh, from yes, speaking. Yes, uh, and, uh, and and asking for a a new church and all these cardinals, not just these three, but uh, they're all involved that we don't want this glamorous, big, fancy church anymore. We want a simple church where that 35 million could have built, I was calculating there, about 360 homes for homeless okay. people. Thanks, Brendan, for yes. joining Thank us this morning. Brendan Butler, spokesperson for We Are Church Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's uh, talk uh, about uh, the housing crisis and uh, the homelessness crisis with uh, Dr. Tricia Kylty of uh, the Society of St. Vincent de Paul. Good morning to you. You're uh, calling in your pre-budget submission for the government to declare a national emergency. Yes, so um, we are facing an unprecedented homeless crisis at present and our um, view is that rebuilding Ireland, the main government policy, has failed. Um, and the government really need to reassess um, and deliver the required level of social housing with a greater sense of urgency, recognising that... Um, the, the government would say that's uh, unfair, that it is being treated as a, an emergency and that you're not giving it time to succeed uh, by coming to the conclusion that it has failed. You're being premature because it will take time uh, and uh, they're putting billions into this. Look, we fully recognise that there has been some programmes implemented, but if we take some of the statistics and targets, so for example, um, by the end of 2018, 1,500 um, rapid build homes were um, due to be delivered um, and to date just 200 have been um, come on stream. Um, the census also showed that there's almost 190,000 vacant homes in Ireland mm. um, but only 79 have come back into um, use under the vacant home scheme. Okay. So there is there is some action but it's not been delivered on the scale that's required um, and things are only going to get worse um, we know that um, all, over 40,000 mortgages are in distress. So what happens if they're repossessed? Um, we know that there's a constant stream of people entering homelessness from the private rented sector. Um, the people who are not um, able to keep pace with unsustainable rents. We have um, families um, that are struggling 
um, with paying rent, um, they're foregoing food, they're cutting back on heating, um, utilities, all those kind of things. So it's really um, something that is only going to get worse um, and we really need to look at um, the approach to the policy. And there's some things that can be done quite quickly. Um, For example, in the budget, we're looking at... um, uh, increasing the property, vacant property site um, levies um, to um, end kind of speculation and um, mm. uh, uh, hoarding of land as well so that we can actually free up the land, build. And of course, um, building takes time. But as I said there, even rapid build is not being delivered um, in the way that it needs to be. Okay, and I I don't mean to be arguing with you or to be making the government's argument, uh, but when the government gives you all that spiel about uh, the billions that they're putting into the problem and how they need time for the focus that is placed on it to be realised. Is that what you describe as unhelpful narratives? Uh, Because uh, you're saying there's a, a lot of empty rhetoric surrounding this. Well, I think one of the major um, issues with the current policy is that it seeks to meet um, almost 80% of social housing needs through the private rented sector. And of course, you can't um, not, if the house, houses aren't on stream yet, you need people to have um, housing support. And if that's delivered through the private rented sector, then um, that needs to still be there. But if the main um, delivery of, of social housing support is through the private rented sector. People are more susceptible to becoming homeless because of those rent increases as well. So we need to deprioritise HAP as the main form of housing support and increase the ambition of our targets in relation to social housing and the building um, of affordable houses as well. And look at different models as well, for example, cost rental mm. um, as a way of um, delivering more affordability for low and middle income um, households as well. Of course, many people were taken aback by the photographs of children sleeping in a, a guard station. Uh, but uh, we've been hearing subsequently that this is nothing new. In fact, uh, I think Focus Ireland said they had about 30 families referred to guard stations in April and almost as many in May. Uh, so uh, it's certainly not a unique circumstance. No, it's not something that's new. It's something that's been happening back in May 2017. We first heard reports of it. Um, And I suppose our main concern is the well-being of children and the impact that's having on children. No child should have to worry where they're sleeping at night. You know, it's summertime. Children should be out having fun with their friends, not worrying if they're going to have somewhere to, to sleep that night. So it's really, really unacceptable that any child should have to spend a night in a Garda station and that will continue unless we look at the model that we're um, uh, uh, the government are using to try and um, address the homeless crisis we need to really look at the build programme, we need to empower local authorities, properly resource local authorities so that they have the capacity and the authority to actually deliver a proper social housing um, programme what what do you think it does to children? What goes on in the mind of a, a child when they live with such insecurity? Well, I think um, children's basic needs, if you don't have a roof over your head, you can't fulfil any other of your needs. So you're, it's going to have, we see children who has a major impact on school, for example. So if you, um, even if, you're, if you have emergency accommodation, if you're in a hub or a, um, a hotel, you're going to be living in cramped conditions. You might be sharing a room with adults. You're going to be going to school 
tired, you might have had to travel very far to go to school, um, and that's going to impact on your learning. Um, children feel um, ashamed if they are uh, homeless or living in emergency accommodation, and then that impacts on how they interact with their friends in school. Um, so it's really, really worrying. Um, it needs to be seen as a, a children's rights issue. It needs to be um, uh, looked at and de- dealt with a, with a greater mm. sense of urgency is, is what we're saying. It's a human rights issue, isn't it? I mean, uh, a real impact on them and how they're living now and the relationships uh, that they have with children in schools and elsewhere and other people for that matter. But uh, undoubtedly, it's something that they'll carry with them all of their lives as well. Children are resilient. You know, some children will be able to bounce back. Um, but o- other children, it may have a long-term effect. And we really need to think carefully about how we're dealing with this issue and how we're how the impact it is having on children and families. Mm. One of uh, the more successful solutions uh, to the problem has been the establishment of these hubs. Uh, and I'm reading this morning uh, that Dublin City Council spent almost £17 million euro refurbishing 10 properties so that they could use them as hubs. Is that value for money? Um, We wouldn't see it as value for money. We would see um, it as an improvement. Um, Hubs offer children um, better facilities. They can access laundry facilities, cooking facilities, for example. Hmm. But it's still emergency accommodation. It's still temporary. Family can't set down routes. They can't plan anything because... It is, in essence, emergency and temporary accommodation. Mm. And so, that's it. It's a lot of money, isn't it, to spend on a temporary solution? Yes. And um, similarly, if uh, the government, instead of investing in social housing, are investing in um, housing supports that go to private landlords, instead of getting a return on their investment through local authority rents, that also isn't good value for money as well. So we need to look at the model and look at how we're delivering and how we're addressing this um, crisis. And then there's the hidden homeless, uh, of course, as well, and uh, on foot of uh, the concern about children sleeping in Garda stations, or people generally speaking in Garda stations, we heard Tusla's concerns uh, about children sleeping in cars. Yes, so there, there's also been reports as well, which are very, very um, upsetting and, and disturbing for people to hear that any child would have to sleep in a car. Um, and the hidden homeless is, is uh, something that we would see on a regular basis um, people doubling up um, with family and friends, living in overcrowded conditions, um, people having to move um, their whole lives into another household and the impact that can have on both the host household and on the family as well. Um, so there's a whole range of families and individuals that are struggling that aren't counted in our national statistics um, in relation to the hidden homeless as well. So it's a much bigger issue than maybe what might be seen at the forefront of it. Mm, I suppose uh, the fundamental question is if there's votes in it. In the, in, the in, ta- in tackling the problem or, or votes lost in not tackling the problem. I mean, it comes back to all of us, doesn't it? Well, I think it will be a major election issue and it will be something that will have to um, be at the forefront of what um, uh, needs to be done and needs to be looked at and how... Um, future governments are going to actually tackle the problem. Hmm. Um, it has to be a major issue. It has to be. Will it though? I mean, will people uh, say, "Yeah, look, I, I'll vote for somebody who'll uh, leave me as I am uh, and promises uh, to do something for these people who have nothing to do with me," or will I vote for somebody who'll give me an extra tenner a week? Well, I would hope that people would 
think of the broader social issues and how everything is linked and how everything impacts on people. Because if you invest in good quality social housing, that has a knock-on effect on everything, where you have um, better uh, private rented sector, better functioning private rented sector that isn't um, under pressure by um, social housing need. You have um, a better housing market that functions and works for everybody. So I think there is arguments to be made in relation to that as well. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining us though, as always. Dr. Tricia Keelty, uh, the Head of Social Justice with uh, the Society of St. Vincent de Paul. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Well, as we discussed last week, uh, P.O. Smith and uh, Paul Bell are two of uh, the 16 Labour Party councillors who have written a letter in support of Brendan Howland's ongoing leadership of the party. This is as a result of what is seen as a bid to oust Mr. Howland from the leadership as a result of some very poor poll ratings. Daniel McConnell, political editor with the Irish Examiner, is on the line. And uh, you're reporting this morning, Daniel, uh, that Mr. Howland is coming under increasing pressure. Yeah, good morning, Michael. Yeah, there's been, in recent weeks, there's been a series of uh, statements made by uh, party councillors, particularly in the Dublin area, uh, complaining that the party is lacking direction, lacking energy, <clears throat> and that, you know, the, the, that Brendan Howland's leadership has made little or no impact. Um, since he's taken over in 2016, I mean the party, you know, was all but decimated in that election in 2016. It lost 30 of, thir- of 37 seats. As if he came back, you know, with the bare minimum that it, co- it really could have come back to to justify its continuation. Um, you know, it, it rallied somewhat by by getting five senators elected, uh, you know, shortly after. But again, progress has been painfully slow um, since then. And ultimately, what you're seeing now is the frustrations among. Some of the party's councillors, it's a small number, it's six as of now, um, uh, but, you know, there still does represent a frustration within the party that, you know, Mr. Howland hasn't exactly brought a huge amount of energy or drive to, to re- regaining or reforming the party or repositioning it as a, as, a position, or as a party of opposition. I mean, one of the main complaints I hear from a lot of people is that, you know, Brendan Howland still thinks he's in government the way he... You know, uh, you know, by way of the, the often, you know, the contributions he makes in the doll, he speaks about his time in office and what he did. You know, the, you know, there's a lot of people thinking, stop talking about a period where that people have clearly punished us for and punished us badly. We need to move on. We need to start again. Um, but Mr. Howland, for whatever reason, seems unable or unwilling to do so. Yeah, and uh, I think that uh, would uh, appear to be the problem for a lot of people. We Jed Nash in here last week uh, claiming that people had forgiven Fina Fall, uh, but eight years on, Labour are still being blamed for the mistakes that they made. Uh, And on one hand you hear, look, we made mistakes, we're sorry for those mistakes. Uh, But on the other hand, then, there's efforts to justify those mistakes and to say that they were the right thing to do at the time. Absolutely, and that's the mixed messages that we're getting from Labour all the time, is that, you know, <clears throat> you know, from Brendan Howland, who clearly was in the engine room as, as Public Expenditure Minister at the time, you know, he would have signed off on a lot of those very, you know, the crucial ones, the, you know, the spending cuts, the, the reductions in, in carers, the reductions mm. in, in, in social welfare rates and all the rest of it. And Joan Burton, uh, uh, for, for that matter, but Brendan Howland uh, standing alongside Michael Noonan talking about bringing some of the lowest earners into the PRSI net, uh, which was a particularly right-wing move. 
I mean, it was, but you could understand it in terms of that the, the Irish tax net base had become so narrow. I mean, you had less than 50% of the population paying any tax at all. Mm. I mean, you could argue that's not sustainable in any kind of modern society. And there is a belief system that, you know, everyone should pay a small amount of, you know, small amount oh, of yeah, you know. yeah, right. No, and I understand, but uh, something that uh, would have irked a lot of Labour Party supporters oh, question, yeah. and was overturned then by Fine Gael. Without question, I mean, in terms of like, I mean, a lot of the policies that Brendan Howland was uh, seemed okay in terms of signing off on were anathema to the Labour ideology and anathema to to what Labour would normally have gone and tried to do in government. You know, I think you know it goes back to the decision. I remember I was at that conference. You know, when they took the decision in UCD to go into power in 2011. You know, there were warning signs about what was ahead and whether it was the right thing for the party or not. Tommy Bruin famously said we should not go in, but he was a lone voice at that stage. Um, but it ultimately seems that Labour did not win a lot of the battles in government and they had to pay the price for basically being the mudguard to Fine Gael for a number of years. And what you're now having, I suppose, in 2018, you're having Brendan Howland defending a lot of what he did in government. Yes, there have been the sort of token, you know, kind of admissions. Yes, we made mistakes and so on and so forth. And, you mm. know, issues around water. Look at what, how they you know, capitulated to Fine Gael in relation to water charges. You look at what, what happened in relation to, um, you know, there was a big standoff in, I think it was the 2012 or 2013 budget about, um, you know, uh, increased taxes for USE. Michael Noonan said mm. absolutely not. Labour caved in. You know, there, there's been kind of uh, admissions that they probably should have walked for government since, you know, on, on that issue. But again, mm. ultimately, what you now have is young people in the party uh, like Martina Kanaki in Dublin South West and others, you know, you know, more more veteran colleagues of hers saying, you know, you know, the party is now going nowhere fast. We need to kind of reassess. And they're making the argument that, you know, rather than being a distraction, a leadership contest would actually energise the party, refocus minds as to what sort of party um, it, it wants to be. And I thought it was interesting that clearly the, the party hierarchy are concerned enough who have had their, their new national political director, mm. Nat O'Connor, who's actually out of the country at the moment, but he sent out a note, an internal memo, which obviously clearly made its way to us in the media um, shortly thereafter, um, you know, saying, this is how you deal with media queries, this is what we're saying, this is the, essentially the party line in terms of dealing with this. Yeah. Um, now, I, I mean, as I'm writing this morning, Michael, you know, so far, this looks like this is a spontaneous thing coming from the grassroots, i.e. the councillors. There doesn't seem to be an obvious kind of um, leader you know, within the parliamentary party. Like There doesn't seem to be like an Alan Kelly figure or kind of a, a Jed Nash figure or an Aon O'Reilly figure within the parliamentary party who you know would be seen to be running this or kind of driving, driving it. it yeah. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that doesn't seem to be the case at the moment. But um, if half of the councillors want a, a change, they can force that change. Uh, and the party has come a, a long way since uh, the idea of Eamon Gilmore becoming uh, the Taoiseach and it was mm-hmm. Labour's way or Frankfurt's way. And then there were the mistakes. Uh, the time in government, uh, which was highlighted by the Tesco ad, uh, Rory Quinn's promise uh, to abolish third-level fees, but most of all, Pat Rabbit, when he said you'd say anything to win an election, has stuck yeah, with people as I being mean, I mean, on that Pat Rabbit thing, I mean, I kind of think that's often taken out of context. I mean, I was actually on the same, it was the week in politics on a mm. Sunday, I was actually on that programme. I think what he said was, <clears throat> what you do is you distill down your message. You, you know, you crystallise it down. <clears throat> I think that, the, 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 like, the way he said it and the way it was clipped, I think, has has, has long lived and has kind of gone down almost a mis- misinterpretation of what he actually said. But, you know, clearly, 
like there was a pan- I remember vividly there was a panic in the Labour campaign a week out from the 2011 election because you know, the strategy was Gilmore for Taoiseach and all the rest of it and most people said not a chance you're off your rockers what are you doing and then they reversed tack and basically went to this sort of single government no thanks you know, so they started attacking Fianna Gale and that's where you got the Rory Quinn promise that's where you got the Tesco ad and all the rest of it mm. so there was an element of panic that led them into rather making some foolish decisions you know, they were going to do pretty okay I mean they got 37 seats which is far more than they normally get um, and I just think they, they kind of like Icarus they flew too close to the sun and got badly burnt as a result and um, what you're now seeing is I think a party that is struggling to see what his identity actually is I mean <clears throat> you look at Brendan Howland as leader he was a reluctant leader in 2016 he always said he'd only take it if, he, if there wasn't a contest there was obviously the orchestration to keep Alan Kelly from, from staying in the, or getting into the race because there was a fear that he had he got into the race he would have probably swept the board in terms of the grassroots um, so you've had all of this sort of stuff that, that had kind of lead me to, to think that, you know, is Brendan Howland the right man to do the job? Many would argue that he isn't. Uh, he's not the right man to re-energise a party and, and grasp, you know, literally grab it by the scruff of the neck and kind of drag it into, uh, into a new modern age. You're looking at the age profile of a lot of their TDs. They're, they're all 60 plus at this stage, or a lot of them are 60 plus at this stage, barring Sean Sherlock, I think. Um, you know, so you, you have an age problem with Labour, you have a demographic problem with Labour. And then also what you have is rumblings from within. The Labour Party famously always fight viciously amongst themselves anyway. It's the, the left always tend to do so. Um, but what you're, you're not seeing is that sort of, like, look where Tony Blair was having taken over a very demoralised Labour Party, you know, in, in 1994. It's, you know, the, the Labour Party in Ireland is a very different beast. It's still very, you know, demoralised. What the, the soundings I was taking last night where you know, we need to get a good local and European elections under our belt so people like me and the media will start writing favourable things about them saying that the momentum is going in the right way. But when you're seeing this sort of internal wrangling going on at this stage, you're kind of thinking, no, all is not well. Mm. Um, but I do conclude, you know, I, I, I would say that as long as it's, it's, it's kind of remained amongst council ranks, then I think Brendan Howland is safe as leader. But I'd say, were we to get into the political season, you know, the Labour thinking and into the the kind of the busy time around the, the budget and so on and so forth, if we were to see kind of a member of the parliamentary party, i.e. A, a Labour senator or a Labour TD, kind of echo those sort of concerns and come out and kind of back uh, the, the calls for change, then then I think you would have a, a major problem for, for okay. Brendan Howland. But um, as of now, I would think he's OK, but he has an awful lot of work to do to convince not only his own members, but the public, that they're, they're a ticket worth supporting. All right, we'll watch that space, as they say. Thank you indeed, Daniel. Daniel McConnell, uh, political editor with uh, the Irish Examiner, brings our programme to its conclusion. Our time has run out, and God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now, michael at lmfm.ie.